Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. My name is Michael Fling. I'm an artistic associate here at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by, you would think, in, in the second season, I would have come up with a cute intro to describe my co-host, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's other artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I would think, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I could, uh, there's really no, I guess I could call you a knight of a round table or a la- lady in waiting is not like, that's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's really only one lady in this whole show. And, and she's not really a, a, a specimen of perfection. Yeah. Though, though played by a specimen of perfection, Dame Julie Andrews. <laughs> but Annika, before we get too much into that, um, a couple housekeeping things. So we are back for season two of In the Spotlight. We're so thrilled to be back. Um, We are going to be publishing episodes on a month to month basis. So probably around this time every month uh, is when a new episode will drop as we start reopening at good speed. Um, Our our time schedule shifts a little bit. So uh, that's just for your information. So you, you can rely on us and know when we will be uh, publishing new episodes. But to launch season two, we are thrilled to be diving into what classic, Annika? We will be doing the great Learner and Low, uh, remembered perhaps a little more starrily than, than it actually is, Camelot. With a book and lyrics by Alan J. Lerner and music by Frederick Lowe, based on The Once and Future King by T.H. White and original, the original production directed and staged by Moss Hart. Uh, a fascinating, fascinating, um, you know, I would call it a chestnut because it's not as produced as a lot of other classics. Um, and it's not, doesn't really make the list of A-list classics, but it is certainly a show that um, captured the public imagination at the time it came out. And um, as we'll discuss, um, became affiliated with the Kennedy, the John F. Kennedy administration, and uh, thus, because of its wonderful score and successful album and things, has been um, much more fondly remembered, I think, as you said, uh, than it than it really is. So um, we're excited to dive in. We've been talking about doing the show for a minute, and uh, it's so excited. It's so exciting. So uh, to kick us off, we'll start with the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Camelot in less than 60 seconds. So, Annika, do you have time on the clock? Ready? Pelinor, Lionel, Dinadin, go! Okay, so uh, it is like uh, the forest out like outside of the castle, um, and uh, we've got um, Guinevere, who is coming to get married to King Arthur. They've never met. Uh, she is distressed and nervous about getting married, as is he. He plops down out of a tree and surprises her. They um, don't know. He knows that she is the queen, the soon-to-be queen. She doesn't know that he's Arthur. They flirt and uh, clearly uh, seem to get along, and then he figures that she figures out he's the king. And then they go back, and we jump forward a little bit, and they and he, she kind of inspires him to create the Knights of the Round Table. Lancelot comes from France um, uh, in search of being like the perfect knight of the round table, and uh but then uh you know guinevere's like shut up you're not perfect and then they slowly fall in love with each other um even though she is of course married to arthur
Arthur, he is Lancelot's best friend. And in Act 2, Mordred, who is uh, Arthur's illegitimate son, um, comes and kind of wrecks Camelot, exposes the affair, and Camelot falls apart. Yay, the end. Okay, it was, it was decent. I spent a long time on the first scene. But that's basically what happens in a nutshell. Yes, yeah. I think it's fair to say with this show... A lot happens, and also not a lot happens. It's one of those shows. So I think you did a, a good job of, of distilling it down to its very essence. That is the essential the essential information. And there are certainly various versions of the show that exist that um, don't really deviate from that story. That story remains uh, in, in all the various versions. But um, some yeah. side characters and things come in and out at various uh, times and stages, but we'll, we'll get into that. So that will bring us to why God, why? Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea of the show, what's its narrative point? What are the authors trying to say and what's its governing purpose or idea? So this one is tough and I'll, 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 I think I probably say that with most every show that we get into, but this one is particularly tough because I would make the case that there is not a governing idea within um, this adaptation of the once and future King. I, I think there are a lot of themes that definitely appear and are contended with by the various characters. Um, but I don't think there is one that really predominates over the others. I think there's a lot of fate versus free will that is at play here. I think there's a lot about optimism versus cynicism and like the idea of like, what is virtue I think is, is definitely a question. Um, what is virtuous? What does that mean? Um, and the pursuit of that. Um, but there's also this uh, interesting kind of thing that another theme that, that very much, is at play or at least I was thinking about as I was re-looking at it is like this idea of allegiances and what are the things you align yourself to whether that's your relationship your heart this idea of knights of the round table your government your country um, and where all of those kind of cross sections are I think that's at play but I, I think the best if I had to like say one of those I think I would say what is virtue is where I would, is what I would say is the main idea, but there's so much about fate and free will, particularly with Merlin and that whole thing. But Annika, like, what would you say is, is the big idea of Camelot? Yeah, I think you're right. It's a little bit hard to discern with this one because we'll talk about this a lot over this podcast, podcast episode, but this is a show that really doesn't feel like the version that was on Broadway the first time is really a finished version, sort of. It's it's a very uh, overstuffed script. There's it, it feels like a maybe an earlier draft of a thing rather than a final one. Um, so it is, there's, there's, as you said, a lot in there. I would say, I mean, usually when I'm working with a show that feels like this, I sometimes go to the end uh, to find the message of the show. And then you'd have to kind of work backwards to pull that through. Um, so you sort of work backwards. And I would say, judging from this, it has a very distinct ending. Um, and it's so funny because I think the show, the plot of the show really informs the sort of mythology around the show later. It's kind of, they're, they're such an interesting echo of each other. But 
Um, if you look to the ending of the show, I would say that the main message is to do the right thing, even if you know it's not going to yield the best results in a practical manner. That's what I would sort of say is like, like striving for something honorable and noble, even if it's almost a little too perfect for what the world is ready for is, is a is a good and noble thing, even if it doesn't end up bringing the results that are uh, the best for the world around it. So um, that's what I would say probably I would, if I had to pull one thing out, um, it would be that, as you said, virtue and honor and, and that, but, but there is a lot and you're so right that Merlin really confuses things with the idea of like, being able to see the future. Like there's a lot in here where you're just kind of like, what? It's a little bit competing with itself. And sometimes it's stepping over its own toes um, thematically. It's a, it's a messy, messy show. Well, and, and even just the idea of like virtue or reaching for what is good, like there is, because they're reaching for perfection, that, that deems almost that fate, fate deems that they are not going to achieve that. So there is like, I, that's kind of where that I mean, it's just it's a it's a mess in a in a very interesting way. I don't mean that to like, to knock it because I, I do like Camelot a lot. And you know, if anyone's listening and wants to do a bold revisal of Camelot, I think sign the two of us up because we both <laughs> are into that idea. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, and the, yeah, so I that's all to say I agree. I think we're, we're in similar territory with our with our read. But Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Camelot? We can never go back to before. Sure. Well, I get to talk about Arthurian mythology, which is just a delightful thing for me to get to talk about. And I promise I will not hijack this entire episode and spend three hours talking about Nennius of Wales and the various places that you can take this. Um, although I might take it a little bit to Nennius of Wales. Um, okay, so obviously Camelot is about King Arthur, fabled mythological king of England, uh, Guinevere his wife, Lancelot his knight, Merlin his m wizard mentor. Um, these are characters that we know from various different sources. Um, but let's bring it all the way back to the origin of this whole thing, because I think when you think of it, Arthur and you think is this a real person you might like I think 50 50 you'd get people being like yes and people being like no um and that's that's probably a pretty accurate <laughs> split because the reality is that Arthur was probably not a single real person he was probably a combination of a few different figures um in early British history uh, got combined through various things to become this sort of mythological uh, version that we know. So basically, um, he was probably a warrior who led British forces against the Saxon invasion in England in the fifth or sixth centuries. Um, he might have been based partially on a Celtic bear deity um, who had a very similar name. Part of the stories around him might have been based on that. Oh, I love talking about this stuff. Um, so, I mean, so it is so nerdy and interesting and it's a rabbit hole. Like I'm sure there's oh. a, probably a podcast that is just about like Arthurian legend. Oh, 
Several, I'm sure. I'm sure. And and I promise that I'll I'll go I'll trip through this lightly because you really can get bogged down on it, but it is fascinating. So um, in brief, the first mention of a sort of proto-Arthur was in the writings of a Welsh monk called Gildas, um, who in the sixth century wrote about Ambrosius Aurelianus, who was a Roman British leader, um, as I said, against the evading Saxons. But it's really two later writers who took that mantle up and are largely responsible for the Arthur that we, we know now. One of them is Nennius of Wales, great name, who wrote a history of the Britons in the 800s that included accounts of the many battles Arthur had fought in. And that's when we sort of start to get the Arthur um, solidified thing. Um, although he couldn't possibly have fought in all of those battles. There's like a lot of stuff in there. It's like he fought, he killed 900 people in this one battle. And it's like very exaggerated. Um, and Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was a writer who wrote a history of uh, England in the 1200s that included Merlin, Guinevere, and a lot of the elements we now know. Um, and again, some of this was all oral and these stories would be passed around and added to and changed. Um, but this is where we get the, the uh, gist of it. From there, the next kind of big step is Sir Thomas Mallory, who wrote Le Mort d'Arthur, um, let me say that without a French accent. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote? <laughs> let me try that. From there, I'm we... keeping this in. I'm keeping okay. this in. Le Mort d'Arthur. It's so hard because you can't. The death of Arthur, basically, but in French. Um, Le Mort d'Arthur. I'll just say it that way. And fourteen. Or Arthur. De Arthur is what I would say probably. Oh. But to, but to Arthur sounds terrible, but that's whatever. Listen, you can take the boy out of Oklahoma, but... <laughs> well, you, there's no good Liberal way. raised elite, you can speak French. It's the, it's the lameness problem. It's like, you can't say it. If you say it correctly, you sound like... <laughs> don't say it correctly. It's like, les miserables. And it's like, yeah. what? Terrible. So um, anyway, so Sir Thomas Mallory wrote this in 1485. And that was really the text on which most of the other stuff was based. A lot of writers took the Mallory um, as a ba basis for their own Arthurian stuff, Tennyson, Keats, there's a lot of poets who use it. Um, that's what really sp sparks the imagination of a lot of people, um, including T.H. White, who wrote in 1958, The Once and Future King, which is a novel of four parts, um, which told the story of Arthur, um, largely based on the Mallory, but obviously really fleshing out that world. And it was that text that ended up inspiring Lerner and Lowe to write Camelot. Although wisely, they only chose the last two books because choosing all four of them would have been uh, quite a lot. So there's your sort of brief history of Arthur. So Annika, I think it's also important to say that because Sir Thomas Mallory lived in like the, around like the 15th century, um, a lot of the Arthurian legend that we now know of and think of, we associate with the Middle Ages with medieval times, basically, um, even though if there's any historical actual basis, that would be more like Dark Ages, like, you know, a thousand years prior, basically, but for the, you know, in somewhat in keeping with how Arthurian legend is used to reflect on current um, times in, in most adaptations, Sir Thomas Mallory like pushes it forward to be a little bit more in to or pushes it forward to be in medieval times versus dark ages. Is that like fair to say? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, usually when you see Arthurian stuff, it is set squarely there and features a lot of stuff that was really a part of um, English and European history, courtly love, chivalry, um, how you treat ladies, how you treet knights, how you treat enemies, the sort of what we see a lot in Arthur um, was something that was a real thing. You know, Eleanor of Aquitaine specifically was very, very interested in sort of courtly rules, things like that. So yeah, we it's it's landed on that time period, even though if there were a real Arthur, he would have been much, 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 much earlier. So that's a really good point. It's it's sort of floating in time and space, but it definitely has landed in our popular imagination a lot later than it would have been. And that will bring us to our new segment, Putting It Together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about the creation process of Camelot. So those who have uh, who are joining us anew, this is a new segment, quote unquote, although we've really just split back to before into two segments because this is a little more accurate a way to, to split them up. So uh, in terms of, you know, we've got Lerner and Lowe and Moss Hart who are fresh off the huge success that is My Fair Lady. Uh, if you want to dive into that, you can listen to uh, our episode on My Fair Lady from season one, which I highly recommend. Um, and they're, the three of them are looking for their next project to work on after next theatrical project to work on together after my fair lady moss and um learner were really taken with one, the once and future king by th white and and really thought that it would be just an extraordinary source to on which to base a musical low was not as keen on the idea and i think it's important to note that because this is this like you know this disagreement sets off um, what will be the tensions and struggles of the creative team through the entire creation process of the show. Um, Lowe was really, you know, they, Lowe thought that maybe The Sword in the Stone, the first book of The Once and Future King, or the, the first part of The Once and Future King was maybe adaptable territory. Um, but because Walt Disney actually held the rights to the Sword in the Stone, they weren't able to use that part. So it forced them to look at the two final parts uh, as the source of their adaptation. So before they put anything to paper on this adaptation, they started thinking about who they wanted to cast in, uh, in the three central roles uh, that they envisioned, King Arthur, Queen Guinevere, and Lancelot. For Guinevere, they immediately turned to their ingenue that they had turned into a star from My Fair Lady, Julie Andrews, who, of course, was very eager to work on another project with them and said yes. And they then went to, for King Arthur, they went to the renowned um, greatest living British actor of the time or widely considered to be the greatest of his generation, Richard Burton, for the role of King Arthur, who was hesitant because he'd never done a musical before, but agreed thinking that it was a, a wonderful opportunity. For Lancelot, they never really found a person until they got to their auditions in New York. And the final person they saw was this weird, tall, strapping guy who came in in jeans, um, which at the time was not uh, a typical thing to be wearing, and opened his mouth and sang, and was so had such a glorious baritone voice they knew they had found their Lancelot and that would be Robert Goulet who had who was a virtual unknown at the time and this catapulted him 
toward the the Robert Goulet that we now know and is a, a fixture of the American Songbook and SNL parody by Will Ferrell. So the adaptation process was was really tough for them in figuring out how they wanted to do all this. Lerner and Lowe, things were very tense between the two of them. Lerner was really struggling within his marriage. And, and it, I think it's fair to say that the, the best account of the writing of Camelot comes from The Street Where I Live, which is Alan J. Lerner's uh, self-written memoir about his career. And he talks a lot about the emotional anguish that he was experiencing in his marriage at the time and his family life and that really was messing with him and got him into a depressed state that was really tough to get out of um and so uh, there was lots of, there was just lots of tension between the team overall so they chose to announce that they'd be returning to broadway with this adaptation of camelot in the middle of a new york times special kind of celebration of the fourth anniversary of my fair lady and um ironic you know what's weird is when they first started adapting they wanted to call the, the original title for camelot was jenny kissed me what like because they call guinevere like jenny but it's like they it was called jenny kissed me that is the worst title of a thing in general but also of this show oh my god can you imagine oh it's so clear they were like you know musical comedy uh, was, was what that version was, was the musical comedy version of Camelot. <laughs> oh, I feel like King Arthur, if there ever was such a person, or uh, whoever he is based on, would rise from his grave and be like, how dare you write a show about my life and call it Jenny Kissed Me. Well, also, like, no. Richard Burton in Jenny Kissed Me. Like, that's not a great self-point. No. No, that is so, no, that is, that is no. So anyway, they go into rehearsals in New York. They're going to play their out of town, their first out of town tryout in Toronto. And they actually are going to open the O'Keefe Center. Um, and it was not hard for them to find funding for the show because uh, My Fair Lady was so successful and this was so hotly anticipated. Um, Columbia or CBS, um, CBS slash Columbia backed the entire project at that point budgeted for $400,000, which was a lot of money at the time. Um, and, but they got the entire thing covered. Uh, and the rehearsal process um, is, is interesting to read about simply because Richard Burton was a noted alcoholic. And um, during uh, tea time, because Julie Andrews, now the established star that she was, would bring out her English tea set at four o'clock and the entire cast would would sit down and have tea together. But Richard Burton would go off to his like dressing room or his private place and uh, have something stronger in the words of um, Lerner. Um, but it, the show is massively long. Um, and and that's really the, the, the big takeaway is they get to Toronto and the show runs four and a half hours and it's very first performance. I mean, some people say four hours, 15 minutes. Other people say four and a half hours. Either way, um, musicals really should run about at that time about two hours and 45 minutes and it was almost you know verging on double that not quite double that but they make major cuts to the show including cutting this entire enchanted animal ballet in act two lancelot went on all these quests those were all gone and another like 20 minutes of redundant material immediately comes out of the show um and even with all those cuts, it's still massively long. 
and on top of it, the word started to get back to New York that the show was a hot mess. Um, that, um, <clears throat> and a ton of people came out to see it because, of course, everyone thought this was going to be My Fair Lady Part Two. Um, you know, uh, and it definitely was not. So the first major hiccup um, out of town is that Alan J. Lerner has a stomach ulcer and is put into the hospital for about a week. So after all of that extracting of all that material, out of respect for Lerner, Hart says we're not going to make any changes to the show while he's in the hospital. So the show is frozen at its still massively long three and a half hour runtime. And just as Lerner is getting out of the hospital, Moss Hart, he tells a story that Moss Hart literally as he, literally as he was going out the door, Moss Hart was coming into the door having had a heart attack. Whether or not that is that accurate is a, you know, another story. But as he's going out, Hart is going in. Um, and Hart asks Lerner not to replace him as the director, but just says, like, you can you can captain the ship. Um, where it needs to go, but don't bring in someone else. Lowe fervently disagrees with that as the solution and thinks they need to bring in another director. So that, you know, again, inflames tensions between Lerner and Lowe, who were already, you know, Lowe was already a reluctant contributor to this process as it was. So they actually go ahead and make the transfer to Boston, which is their second out-of-town tryout, where... Um, Lerner, to his own admission, uh, sees what the show is finally about to him, which is the final few pages. And he starts to drastically rewrite both acts um, with, um, with really truly taking a huge chunk out of act two and basically um, putting it all in the song Guinevere. Uses that number as even more storytelling than it was already doing. Um, and they also decided that they needed to add another song for Guinevere um, to explain her kind of emotional state as she's falling in love with Lancelot. And uh, the famous story goes that uh, they uh, went into Julie Andrews only a couple days before their first preview in New York and said, um, hey, we want to write you a new song. Is that okay with you? But we probably won't have it. You know, it's, it's going to be pretty close. And she famously replied, uh, that's all right. Just try to get it to me the night before. So despite all these drastic changes, the company remains in really good spirits and all the historians and creatives attribute that to uh, the attribute that to Richard Burton and Julie Andrews, who as good old fashioned thespians really uh, helped keep the company uh, in good spirits. And in that company, I should mention, is John Cullum, who was the original Sir Dinadin and actually was a favorite of the creative team and, and, and ended up understudying Richard Burton and going on for him a couple times as King Arthur, uh, which you can actually hear more about in John Cullum, An Accidental Star, which is streaming on Goodspeed On Demand. Uh, you can go get your tickets now at goodspeed.org. Um, but it's his solo show. It's really uh, enchanting and great. He has so many great stories about um, Burton and Julie and Robert Goulet. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor, it goes on, but it's really, uh, he's such a great storyteller and has so many good, like, just pearls of uh, theatrical lore within it so it's it's a fun it's a really fun solo show he's so great i mean what a career he's had truly you're in town love it and so they go into new york and open and the reviews are very mixed the new york times basically pans it some uh 
some papers are enthusiastic and they get some quotes out of it, but things really don't look that great. Um, Moss Hart recovers from his heart attack and they actually go back into rehearsal and make changes to the show, uh, including cutting two numbers, Take Me to the Fair and, and Fion Goodness. And uh, that seems to help the show a little bit, but they're just not getting the walk-up traction that they uh, need in order to sustain uh, the run and, and recoup their investment. But the fifth anniversary of My Fair Lady is coming up, and Ed Sullivan offers Lerner and Lowe a, a tribute episode on his, on his program, The Ed Sullivan Show, and they decide to take that time and mainly showcase Camelot. So Julie Andrews, Richard Burton, and Robert Goulet uh, perform major pieces and segments of the show on Ed Sullivan, uh, including Simple Joys of Maidenhood, uh, the title number, and the scene that follows, What Do the Simple Folk Do, and If Ever I Would Leave You. And the next day, uh, the line at the box office is around the block, and that continues. The show becomes a massive hit, um, despite being snubbed, kind of, at the Tony Awards. Uh, and I actually think... This show probably holds the record for most Tony wins without being nominated for um, Best Musical of like an original production. It wins four Tonys, but it's not even nominated for Best Musical. Yeah, I, it's pretty wild when you look at that because it did. It, it was nominated for five Tonys, won four of them. Um, Julie Andrews not winning, um, which she... Well, whatever. That's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. But Richard Burton wins and the costumes, the scenery, you know, like there's yeah. that, but it really is is snubbed by the Tonys. Yeah, not not nominated. Um, and subsequent to this, it it does fairly well as a as a thing in life. Um, so several things happen um around the show subsequent to that. Um, there were several revivals that pop up every few years, especially in the years following its original production. Um, there was a tour, there was a British production. Uh, there was a 1980 revival with Richard Burton again, starring with Christine Ebersole, uh, 1981 Richard Harris as Arthur version that was filmed for HBO. And then a tour in 1993 with Robert Goulet, now starring as Arthur instead of as Lancelot. So, and subsequently it's it's done um, at regional theaters, et cetera, but because it is such a huge bloated show, it's a little hard to do in our contemporary times because the cast is so huge and it's, it's just a big, big show. So um, in recent years, there have been attempts to cut it down at, uh, in 2014 at Two River Theater, we did a production when I was there uh, that had been cut down and was directed by David Lee, which was very stripped down, much smaller. So some of these things are sort of around now. Um, and then of course, there was a film version in 1967 directed by Josh Logan, which starred Richard Harris as Arthur and Vanessa Redgrave as Guinevere, and which kind of goes down in history as one of the uh, worst film adaptations of a Broadway show in many people's top lists, I would say. It, it is not considered um, a great example of a musical on film. It did not even make it into our musical movie March Madness brackets, uh, and not a single person <laughs> complained about that. So the show has a bit of, of life, and it also has a very, very successful uh, cast album. It was hugely popular, the number one LP in America for 60 weeks. Um, again, a very different time when Broadway occupied the popular imagination um, in music and art a, a lot more than it does now, unfortunately. 
So the other thing that when we're talking about Camelot, uh, we can't not talk about is its association with the Kennedy administration. And this happens because after Kennedy was assassinated, Jackie Kennedy gave an interview where she talked about how much they loved listening to the cast album, how much they loved the show, and how much, um, especially for John F. Kennedy, the lyrics, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot, had resonated. And so that really cemented this association in the public's imagination. And it's kind of the perfect thing for the show because the show is about this glorious time and trying to be something better um, that didn't end up really happening. So it's really something that ended up becoming one in the public's imagination. They really informed each other, the show Camelot and the JFK um, administration and the sort of mythology around that. So that becomes connected in a lot of people's minds um, forever and really gives life to the show beyond what it might otherwise have had. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside if ever I would leave you. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so let's talk about one of my most favorite songs, the great romantic, if ever I would leave you. Oh, I love it so much. All right, so um, just for some context, this song happens in the second act. Um, at this point, Lancelot and Guinevere have been in love with each other for years, but they also cannot do anything about it. They are literally never alone. Um, and they're also both so loyal to Arthur that even if they were alone, they wouldn't be able to act on it as we see when exactly that happens. So they are completely stuck. And this is the song of that stuckness. It burns with passion, but also pain and frustration. And it, and it never ever overtly actually says, I love you, um, which of course makes it 10 times better as a love song. Um, Incidentally, Rodgers and Hammerstein are the kings of the conditional love song, which is sort of, if I loved you, this sort of like, I don't love you, but if I did, it would be like this. Um, but Lerner and Lowe are really the masters of the sort of benign romantic obsession that never actually mentions love song. Um, this one is a classic, obviously. On, on the Street Where You Live is another one like that. Rodgers and Hammerstein have some of these too, but they're a little bit usually less benign if you think of like Lonely Room, which is romantic obsession gone very dark. Um, in Oklahoma. Okay, side note. All right, so back to this song. So yeah, so this is an interesting song too, because I think it's very easy to get this song wrong. Although it's like a classic, uh, Robert Goulet sang it for years, people love it, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it seems simple. I think it's very, very easy to do this song in this show and not understand what it is. And the key to it really is that tension of what I said at the very beginning of this, that, that as much as this is a love song, as much as this is about a man who's just desperately in love with this woman, it's also very, very important that this song is a song sung by a person who cannot touch the person that he is singing this song about. And it's also very important that that woman is sitting there with him and she also cannot touch him, that they are not able to actually act on this great, great love that they have for each other. And if you don't build in that tension 
into this song. If you think it's just a sort of gentle, uh, beautiful ballad, then it's not going to do what it needs to do, which is which is really, really ratchet up that tension. And this should be also, if you do it right, an incredibly sexy song because of that anticipation, because of that tension. But the very specific context is that they, Lancelot and Guinevere are in a main room of the castle. They are not alone. They are not in a bedroom. They are not by themselves. People are occasionally passing by. Um, Lancelot has just read a poem. Guinevere has asked why he doesn't write about her, um, which is a little bit strange, but whatever. Um, and he says he can't write about her because he loves her too much and then he knows he should leave her, but he can't. And then he just starts singing this song, even though on the album, there's gonna be a bit of an intro. And I'm, I'm listening to the great Robert Goulet, the original Lancelot singing the song. Um, he has a glorious, glorious voice. He's actually not my favorite singer of this song. I actually prefer Anthony Warlow's um, version that he sings on an album because I think Anthony Warlow actually delivers the tension in this song a little bit better, but whatever, we're gonna do with Robert Goulet because he's, he's the original. So let's, let's dive in. This starts out low and low key, almost like a purr. Um, it's not a big declaration right at the top. It's not booming out. I love you so much. You know, it, it's very much something that he's thought about a lot. And it's something that he can't even really fully say. It's all of all of the song is kind of like approaching this topic from the side. Um, they're in public, other people might be listening. He has to keep it contained. Everything he says is something that kind of could be innocent, you know, if other people hear it. And we hear that um, in this beginning. So it starts small, something just for them um, and sort of just a statement. If ever I would leave you, it couldn't be in summer. He's, he's thinking this through. Um, and it almost sounds like an interior monologue. It alternates between him telling her and him asking himself this question he has no answer for. And that very much mirrors the reality of what's going on with them. This is a love story that has necessarily been largely alone for each of them. They are both madly in love with each other, but most of this has had to be internal because they can't be together and they can't be alone and they can't just go off on their own and have, you know, little dalliances. They love Arthur. They, they are around Arthur all the time. So, so this is a romance that is happening between them, but is also very much happening in their own heads. And you can see this very much with Lancelot here. He's, he's presenting this as sort of something that is a creation in his own mind, as much as it is something that has uh, been built around her. And um, I love that this, this section builds from the small start to the big note on seeing you in summer, I never would go. Um, the song is locating his pain, which is in this big note, specifically on him leaving her. I never would go is getting that note. Your hair streaked with sunlight, your lips red as flame, your face with a luster that puts gold 
to shame. And now he's in this emotional zone of that note. He's allowing himself to picture her in the summer. And all of these have that same sort of reserve and distance. He's admiring her. He's literally kind of painting this image of her um, with these words, but from afar. He's, you can see her so clearly and this beautiful imagery that he's painting her with, but that isn't really how you would talk about someone that you were having an affair with, that you were in love with and were making out with and having long conversations with. He's looking at her. He's admiring her and seeing her from a distance. And this is what his love is. Um, right now. That's the reality of it. And also remember, he's a poet. That's what he was doing right before the song. And this is what he's, he's doing exactly what Guinevere asked him to do, which is to write about her. And now we see a little bit why he said he couldn't do it because it's, it's too obviously passionate, right? He can't really, he can't really write about her in a courtly way. It's too, it's too much because this is how he truly feels about it. But then we have this descending melody pulling him back up from that high note, back onto the earth after this like imagining of her beauty. But if I'd ever leave you, how could it be in autumn? How I'd leave in autumn, I never would know. I've seen how you sparkle. When fall nips the air, I know you in autumn, and I must be there. So now he's thought about summer, and that's out, clearly, but he also can't leave in autumn, because the high note is now, I never would know. He doesn't know how he could possibly leave in autumn. Now, the first one, it's very visual. He's imagining how beautiful it is. He never could go. It's a little bit more overtly emotional. But this one, he's trying to think his way out of this conundrum a little bit. The, the vocabulary is a little bit more um, thoughtful than it is visual. And he still can't figure it out. And unlike Summer, when we get that visual, we, we have more of a portrait of her in general. She sparkles. Um, so it is still visual, but there's also something about that that's more about her as a personality. And I love that he says he knows her in autumn. Um, he said, I never would know how he would manage to leave her, but he knows her. That's where his certainty is. He, he just is so clearly um, full of love for her and understanding for her uh, that that's, that is un questioned in his mind. As much as he's thinking about other things, this is something. And there's so much pain in this whole melody. There's just this melancholy as much as there is beauty because of that ache to love someone this much, to look at them, to know them, and yet to never be able to really act on it. It's just, it's torture for both of them as much as it's something to celebrate. And could I leave you running merrily through the snow or on a wintry evening when you catch the fire's glow so we get this little mini bridge here this is a very simple structure of song we just basically get three verses in this little mini bridge um and this is lancelot allowing himself to imagine her in the winter with this great little hopping melody of running merrily through the snow and the melody does that as well with her. So um, really coming to life here, he's allowing himself to go into that vision. 
And then it slows down a little bit for Catch the Fire's glow. From day to night, we can hear the sort of uh, diminishment of that as slowing down, relaxing a little bit. And this is so interesting to me because what this leaves out, and there's this little musical moment here before the next verse, is the step that they can never have, which is the next logical step in that wintry day, running merrily through the snow, catching the fire's glow. So we've got day, evening, and then there's just nothing. And the natural nothing of that day, when you love someone that much, would be bed. And Lancelot doesn't go near it, right? Because he's very chivalrous. And obviously that is like something he's not even allowing himself to, to go to in this song, but it's right there and we can hear it. I think that there's just sex all through this song. This is just, this is kind of a horny song, you guys. I don't know how else to say it because there's just so much longing, but also just, that anticipation of what you cannot have, which only builds the tension. And I think this is where we really, really hear it. There's just sex is present, but it's also quiet, but it's just there and you can sense it. If ever I would leave you, how could it be in springtime? Knowing how in spring I'm bewitched by you. Oh, oh no, not in springtime, summer, winter, or fall. No, never could I leave you at all. All right, so we jump from that unspoken sexiness to this. He's back. He has to finish it out because we. this is a list song. We've gotten summer, autumn, winter, and now, of course, we have to go to spring because the point of the song is that he, there's no time that he could ever leave her. And now he's sort of lost the containment in the earlier verses. He, he doesn't want to describe her. He doesn't want to go there. He's just, you know, he's almost brushing past that. Um, he can't leave her in spring either because he's just bewitched by, by her. So it's like he doesn't have the energy to really go through this exact pic portrait of what she's like in this other season because he's just in it now um, to this beautiful, beautiful, glorious, big romantic finale. Oh no, not in springtime, summer, winter, or fall. Never could I leave you at all. So big and so sweeping and so just, it's just his heart just like exploding out of his chest here. Um, and obviously you always have a beautifully singing Lancelot who could just nail this. And he's just, there's no restraint possible here, right? This is just open. But at the same time, it's still melancholy because this is not necessarily a happy thing, right? He's so in love with her. He could never, ever leave her. And yet with it is the sorrow of knowing that this isn't really a good thing. It would be better for both of them if he could just leave, or it would be better for both of them if he could just not love her. And he just, in this big, huge, open heart moment, you just know that that is not possible for him. But that's not the end of the song. Then we have this other thing that happens, which let's dive into, because this is what confuses a lot of people about this song.
If ever I would leave you How could it be in springtime Knowing how in spring I'm bewitched by you so So that obviously gives us another chance to hear glorious Robert Goulet sing this beautiful song. But why is there that little musical interlude and then a repeated last verse? It's a little strange because, you know, again, it is a list song and we've gone through all four seasons that we don't, there's no more seasons to go for. Um, and there's nothing in the script that says what is happening in this musical interlude. So if you are doing this show and you're like, what do I do in this moment, in this kind of musical moment that isn't as highly dramatic, it's kind of a, a little bit of uh, the earlier in the song repeated, um, no lines, no indication of what is going to happen. But I think that this moment is the key to the whole song, the key to just making everybody in the audience just losing their, their hearts, basically, because You've just built up all this tension. Um, you've just almost released it with that big finale, like never would I could I leave you at all. Um, but then you get this little music, and then this again. So what do you what do you do? I think here's what happens. Here's what you do. I think what you do is you remind us of the reality of their situation, which we've almost almost forgotten about because you you're never staging this number with like bunches of people on stage besides these two. They're mostly alone, so you can forget that they're in public. Don't let us forget that they're in public and that they can't betray Arthur and that they can't do anything that might make people talk. After the finale of that last first, most people would fall into each other's arms. I mean, come on. If somebody is singing you this song about you, with this voice, you're going to make out with them. You're going to make out with them so hard right there. I mean, how could you not? You're just, of course you are. Especially if you've been in love with them for a bunch of years, years, no restraint. There's no possibility of like that. You've unleashed the beast of that final, I, I can never leave you. Like the romantic stakes are so turned up. But if you have this moment, you know, be them not able to fall into each other's arms. This moment in this little interlude, you have a reminder of those realities. Someone passes by, they have to be totally normal. They're about to touch each other. They can't touch each other. They can't even look at each other. And then you have a repeat of that final verse. It's going to be agonizing, agonizing. Whereas the first one might seem more passionate this one will now seem tormented because now if we've forgotten that they cannot be together, now we are reminded that they cannot be together, that he cannot bear to be apart from her, that all he does is think about her, but that they cannot actually touch. And that is what you do with this final verse. So do not ever, ever do this number with these two characters kissing each other or hugging each other, or even be very careful if you're touching each other, make sure it's something that is that is something that they could potentially be hiding, something surreptitious. That will make the song 
just work like gangbusters. I guarantee you. Um, don't have her looking, spending this entire song looking thrilled that he's singing her this. Have her spend this entire song looking agonized and tortured by this because it should be agonizing and torturous. What is the only thing that is could make hearing this song from a person you love agony, the knowledge that you cannot act on it because you would be betraying the person you also love. It is all about the pain as much as it is about the passion. Ratchet up that tension and just make it seem like these two should be tearing off each other's clothing, clothing at the end of the song and they cannot possibly do it. And then this song will work so beautifully because the contrast between the romance and the tension makes the song one of the greats of all time. And it is just a great song and it's lovely and I love it, but also, yeah, pain, sexiness, tension, as much as love. And that will bring us to How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues the show faces, both internally and externally. So externally, I don't really think there are much external problems with Camelot. I think all of its problems are internal. So this may get into a little bit, uh, this is definitely our opinion territory. Um, and every, you know, every subsequent production has had its own ideas of how to contend with the massive book that exists um, as um, all over the place as it is. Um, but I, to open up discussion, um, I, I, I think, to open up the discussion, since there is no governing purpose, I, I feel like the show really loses its way after the first scene between Arthur and Guinevere, um, when it becomes Merlin and Follow Me and Morgan Le Fay and all, it starts to really get into the lore of Arthurian legend, which I also, think part of the issue inherent to the show is I just don't think people are actually that familiar with Arthurian legend. Like I think maybe people will draw the association between Arthur and like the search for the Holy Grail and Knights of the Round Table and Excalibur, maybe. Um, but I feel like a lot of that has to do also with like Monty Python. So like Annika, I mean, how... Uh, why don't we, I mean, do we just dive in? I mean, I, that to me is where the show first goes astray and then Pelinor comes in and it's like, why are you here? You don't add anything to this story except for literal comic relief. And and act one and act two feel like totally different shows. I mean, it just, it goes off the deep end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you've identified a bunch of different problems with this show. Um, I agree that that first scene is great. Um, but it's funny because when I was reading this and we should give the caveat that like, it's very hard to find quote unquote, like the original Broadway script because now there's a lot of different scripts that have existed trying to sort of pare it down a bit. Um, so we've read all of them um, basically. Between, but Between the two of us, we have surveyed the territory. <laughs> territory and I, I did work on that David Lee production um, starring the glorious and beautiful Oliver Rowe Thornton who is delightful and a listener of the podcast so shout out to him hi um, but uh, so I'm I'm also coming at this from 
knowing the very stripped down version uh, before I knew the original version. And I was kind of shocked when I read it because it it is so big. And also um, it's funny because obviously I, I am a dramaturg, I'm trained as a dramaturg and I, I work on a lot of new work and reading the script that we have, that's kind of the earliest version of the script. It, it has a lot of the problems that I often encounter in in early scripts of something, um, mainly a big adaptation problem, which is that when you are adapting something that is big and you love, what can very commonly happen is that it exists fully formed in your head. You love all these characters, you love these different parts. And so what this what you put onto the page of your script is a lot of stuff. And you both it over explain some people, under explain other people. There's a sense of sort of like, well, I have to include this, this story, but I can only do it really quickly. So I'm just gonna like throw that in there. But like in my head, it's fully formed. So it doesn't, it doesn't ping as something that's like weird. Um, and I think that that is exactly the problem. When I read the script, I was like, oh, this is someone who loves the source material too much because there are characters like Pelinor, you're exactly right, where it's like, he comes on the st stage, he takes up a lot of oxygen. And also there's stuff that they're referring to where you're like, I'm sorry, what? Or like, he's been asleep for 50 years and, and has a dog with him that he hates. And you're like, I don't understand any of what you are talking about. But I presume that if you read the Once a Future King, you'd be like, oh my God, my favorite character, Pelinor here, who takes up many, many pages of story is here and I love that, but you just can't put that in a dramatic text when you can't be sure that everybody has read that source material and has that same love, even Merlin. I was gonna say, even Merlin, like the whole like, oh, I live backwards and I know the future and, but I'm, even that, it's like, it's such a wild concept to grasp. Like part of the show feels, it feels similar to like 1776 to me in the way that it's like, oh, there's this like collective knowledge of kind of who these people are. And so we can make jokes that are very contemporary, like using them basically that are, and a lot of that in a musical comedy sense is successful. And I think that's kind of where like so much of the, the cuts and things were like, okay, this is working. It's getting laughs. Like that's good, but it doesn't actually forward the plot or give yeah. us any, like, there's not a ton of actual explanation of character. Certainly not yeah. the, 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 kind of cosmic um love that develops between Guinevere and Lancelot just kind of happens after he performs a miracle and she's been like ragging on him the whole time which some of that stuff I have to say is really funny and very good, yeah. good dialogue like very there's some good dialogue and stuff in there but it's just like what story are you telling yeah and it, it sort of prevents a little bit some of the character development to have some of that stuff in there. Like you're so right about Merlin and his kind of sense of what the future is and having told Arthur some of that it sets up a weird thing that happens where, I mean, he, Merlin himself does it where he's like, well, I'm going to be seduced by Nimue and here she is and uh, bye, you know, it's like, and then with Arthur, I mean, Arthur is so passive while Mordred just continues to take over that you're just kind of like, come on, you dummy, like, go get rid of that guy. But he's like, well, shrug, you know, I, my fate is decreed for me. And like, I can't do anything. And this is how it is. And it's sort of like, it makes it a less interesting journey than it is if you actually had Arthur sort of struggling with some of the stuff that Mordred means, which is like, you know, 
do you, like Arthur is a character who likes to believe the best in everybody. You know, he's willing to let Guinevere and Lancelot be in love with each other, even though he knows that that is treason to him. But if they're not really acting on it, he's kind of happy to sort of like let it happen. And then he has Mordred who's, who's just slowly taking things over. And, you know, th there's a more interesting psychological question here of who Arthur is and what he's willing to endure because he chooses to believe in this idyllic world that he's created for himself that just really gets undercut if you sort of have this sense of like, well, you know, that's, uh, this is how it is and I, I'm not gonna do anything about it. So you're, you're ultimately not serving your own show by keeping a lot of that stuff in there. So cutting it out. And I will say having cut out Merlin entirely in the David Lee version, you do not miss Merlin <laughs> at all. Like it, it's fine if he's a sort of shadowy figure from youth that was like an advisor that he no longer has. It's that completely achieves the purpose you needed to achieve. You really don't need that. And we only had three nights also, which let me is maybe too few nights, but because when they all go over to Mordred's side, you're like, whoa, those guys are not loyal. Well, but but even to back up your point, I mean, a lot of the one, I think the New York Times review at the time was like, oh, Lerner and Lowe very much missed their third collaborator, George Bernard Shaw, um, which is because so much of My Fair Lady is just Pygmalion like script with a couple things added. But I think it's it's interesting because within using it as a counterpoint to Camelot, even structurally speaking, we don't really get, I, I as much as we both like the first scene, and I think the first scene accomplishes so much in terms of endearing both Guinevere and Arthur to us, it's pretty, like, I, you know, we I'll, we'll, I'll talk about it a little bit in my miscellaneous favorite things, but it's pretty expert musical theater and musical comedy and all those things, but there is no, we, we don't get a definition of what Arthur wants through song there is and not that every show has to have an I want song or whatever but we don't really have a clear and defined musical journey for these characters so it's really the only thing we can get is like illustrating their inner life on some level like in emotions and feelings but we just don't really we the only thing we get is like Guinevere wants to be pursued which is not like a thing i mean yes that is obviously a part of the story but like she's not our protagonist like arthur is our protagonist so it, there is this weird like disjointed and i'm sure because also richard burton like th they're trying to navigate how much they can really make him mm -hmm. say like do things i think that's part of it and he's a shakespearean classically trained like youngest person to ever play hamlin at the old vic like Right. Titan of theater so like give him a give him a monologue let right. him let him speak and and they do do that but it is in this i mean the stunted kind of high pollutant like proposition like all of the like very shakespearean kind of nature of that is like at war with the musical comedy aspect of it there's it's it's just disjointed kind of all over the place yeah and and the end of the first act is a really good example of that he does have a monologue about Guinevere and Lancelot, even though that that also seems a little fast. We were like, wait, you just saw them look at each other. They hate each other. Why are you suddenly like on top? He's very perceptive, I guess. Um, but he gets a monologue there where I think most people would give that moment a full musical kind of soliloquy. Uh, but yeah, and you're right. I mean, Guinevere feels like it feels like the arc of Guinevere should be this kind of silly girl who wants to be fought over to a woman who realizes with 
absolute horror, like what it actually means to be some, what, like what that actually means, the flip side of that, you know, but we don't really see that. We see her sort of being a silly girl who's like telling Arthur that, oh, why do people fight? Well, you and your knights like to have fun playtime. You know, she's so dumb in the beginning sometimes. And it's strange to me. Um, and then we don't ever really get to see her full uh, journey later. I mean, the second act just burns through a lot of stuff. And then we have Mordred, this character that just takes over in a way that's kind of mystified. You know, it's, it, yeah, it's, there's a lot, there's such a great show in here. <laughs> It's just, you just wish you could kind of dive in there and really like pull those threads. And, and this team, I mean, Moss Hart was like one of the great editors of work ever. You know, I mean, if you read act one, uh, you really get to see like what, what, you know, this was a, this is a brilliant theater brain. So I think the fact that like this process making it was such a mess and ev all of these guys were focused on other things in their lives, whether it was health wise or, um, emotional or something like you can really kind of see that in this show that it just never quite got to be trimmed down and edited and tightened in the way that it really needed to be. Well, and I think it's also probably fair to say that Moss Hart is a genius of musical comedy. And so like all, like all the musical comedy stuff is really good, but maybe like, you know, in the case of My Fair Lady, you have Shaw and the already, the structure of that and all of that to balance it out. And he's not going to mess with you know, one of the greatest plays of all time. But in this, you really don't have that. So it relies on his musical comedy instincts. And like, maybe if there were, you know, maybe if Josh Logan were at the helm of this from the beginning, or you had some other, you know, <clears throat> more, I'm trying to think of like, some of the other directors that existed at the time. But like, if you had a more dramatically inclined director, maybe that would, I mean, maybe that's not a fair critique of Moss Hart, but it, it does feel like that, is the element that is completely mm -hmm. missing and yet where the interesting things are and they do give some really lovely i mean i loved you once in silence before i gaze at you again you've talked to us about if ever i would leave you which is one of the great like romantic songs oh, in the canon yeah. and even just the the sentiment of um even the sentiment of how to handle a woman is to love her and like you know some of those like very m mature and adult kind of, you know, not big production numbers, but emotionally um, complex ideas that are at play, like they start to go there, but they don't ever really conquer it, or they, they seem not, they don't seem to want to embrace that in their adaptation, much as they want to tell this love triangle story. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just strange. And I think ultimately would would have been the best success they could have hoped for was would be if they had taken ownership of the story, which is what you have to do ultimately with an adaptation and and decide beyond what the story is to you of the source material, you have to decide what the story is of your version. And sometimes that's different. Um, and it just doesn't feel like they really ever claimed it as their own in the way that it's maybe they were towards the end of the show, you know, <laughs> like you can see, you can see those glimmers of it. Um, but it just does not feel like it was, it's, it's a finished thing. Honestly, just like hire us to work on a show where we, there's a lot here. There's a good show in here. I, I think it would take, it takes a lot of, it takes a, 
a solid looking at and probably returning to source material, pulling out the trunk of songs of Lerner and Lowe and maybe inserting some things in to help illustrate some emotional moments, probably, maybe, I don't know. But I think if you threw the, threw the kitchen sink at the show and really tried to thread the needle between stripping it down, but also still having its like epic kind of Shakespearean scope, I, I think there is a good show that exists in Camelot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's so close. So close. It's in there somewhere. And that will bring us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things in Camelot. So Annika, who you alluded to this a little bit before, but who is your favorite character in Camelot? Um, it is a little bit tricky because there's, I love parts of many of the characters and then I find other parts of them so frustrating that it's hard for me to fully love them. Um, I'd have to say Pelinor. Oh my Just, God, the one we're gonna cut? <laughs> that was that was purely for you as a joke because Pelinor is the worst. And of course I don't love Pelinor. No, although um, it's a little bit tricky because as I said, there are parts of all of these characters that I really love. And then there's other parts that make them hard for me to love. And so I would have to say that my favorite character is um, Arthur with the caveat that I find Arthur incredibly frustrating, especially in the second act um, for the reasons that we've discussed. Uh, I wish there was a little bit more of a journey for him. I wish that there was a little bit more of, I, I wish I could buy his reasonings a little bit more. Um, but the reason that I would say Arthur is my favorite is because I think he's a kind of character that you really don't get to see very much, which is um, a man, a leader, who is so thoughtful um, and there's something kind of innocent about him, even to the point of naivety in the, in the second act, I think we see, but like, I find his striving to be a good person and thinking about what that means, really kind of refreshing on a stage. And especially where we are now in terms of masculinity, you just really don't see um, a man and a leader and a king in, in a piece of art like this, who is this um, thoughtful and sensitive and not uh, violent in any way, shape or form and not um, someone who's leading with his rage or leading with his sort of uh, jealousy. Um, a lot of the more contemporary versions of King Arthur have him being this great warrior, have him being this sort of alpha male. And this is definitely not what we would call an alpha male. And I think as a, as a portrayal of a, a leader who is an alpha male, I mean, he is a king. He is one of the greatest kings of all time. For him to be this, this kind of person is a really interesting thing for me. And I think it's such a, a, a wonderful thing and and you love him even though you do kind of want to smack him a little bit in the second act for being such a dum-dum but um you love him for who he is so i'm gonna say arthur i think that's great i mean it's hard to not say arthur um i'm gonna go ahead and say guinevere because i i love her quips and i i, I think musically her journey is really great not just because i love julie andrews but i i think she is a, a very fascinating creature and and like you were saying about arthur i wish she had a more articulated journey that was um a little a little clearer and a little more um 
you know leaned into that complexity but um in general i i mean i agree with everything you're saying about arthur the idealism is hard to not love and and things but the the torture of guinevere is particularly interesting and the poise with which she handles things and yet is sassy and has those quips i think the the com the combo that is all of those things is very very interesting to me um so what about oh and i also should say I, there's a world where mordred could be my favorite character because he's such an interesting like little thing and um shout out to roddy mcdowell who actually was the original mordred and lobbied to play the part um and they were like you're too big a star and he's like no i really want to do this um and i think also brought a lot to that original um show that it probably helped paper over some of these things so i we didn't really talk about that in the history or in the problem but i think he is also a very interesting and essential um part of this you know, it's so funny that you said that because I almost said Mordred as well. Um, I think partially on the strength of the Mordred that I saw on stage, which is Hunter Herdlicka, who did it at um, Two River. It's definitely a part that you can you can make into a, a scene stealing part. And also, I think a part that, as you said, with with a great actor, um, a lot of these parts just make a lot more sense, including Mordred. Um, but God, he's just so annoying on the page. So what's your favorite song in Camelot? Ooh, that's a tough one. I have a general rule of not saying the one that I did the song analysis for, although probably that is my real answer because I love that song so much. But I will say um, The Lusty Month of May is my favorite because it's so fun and it's so joyous and there's... I just think it sort of captures something that you don't get to see a lot. And also um, I sing it to myself all May every year. So. How can you not? How can you not? I mean, it's like begging for it. I, yes. Um, I have to say for me, I really like the song Guinevere that like comes at the very end. There's like a very interesting kind of the medieval kind of like bigness of it. I appreciate, even though, you know, dramatically it's, describing things that are happening off stage and breaking like cardinal rules of theater but i still really enjoy it um but i am actually going to say my favorite song is what do the simple folk do um which i think it gets stuck in my head all the time i the little dance break at the end i think is so exciting and the the concept that like they were born royalty or that she was born royalty and therefore she doesn't know what simple folk do and yet he as wart like kind of does, but it's like a flirtation. I just think it's a really charming piece of musical theater that um, is sorely needed when it comes in the show. <laughs> um, if if it is a little like tone deaf to everything else that's going on, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, these two do love each other, even though she's in love with Lancelot and that's clear, you know, it's like, okay, there's some weirdness there, but it's a great song and I really enjoy it. Excellent choice. So what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Camelot? Pelinor, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're killing me. All right. Truly, what is your favorite miscellaneous thing? <laughs> um, I will say, you know, th there is that famous adage about don't, don't work with dogs and children <laughs> on stage. But um, I do love the use of a well-placed child in a in a show. And I think this is kind of one of the best. The moment at the very end 
with Arthur and this child, uh, Tom of Warwick, which is actually kind of from the T.H. White, apparently. Um, and the idea is that it's Tom, the, the child's name is Tom, and that's going to be uh, Sir Thomas Mallory. So it's like, you know, Arthur is meeting the person who's going to carry on the legend. Um, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see that connection into, to uh, Hamilton until right now. It's like, who lives, oh. who dies, tells your story. But there you go. Um, but I do think that there is something incredibly poignant about that moment and the fact that that is a child. Um, it's such, it, it really makes you leave the show feeling the weight of this and the knowledge that this boy, first of all, is willing to go into battle and, and fight for all this stuff that he's heard of, but also that that as much of a mess as it all is, um, Arthur has has succeeded in this way that he's, He's caused a spark of something to light um, that will be carried on throughout the centuries to you watching. Um, so that's what I would say. Although, man, that ending is so heavy and dark compared to the rest of the show. It's a great choice. It's a beautiful, beautiful ending, and some of them sparkle and like that. Just the raw optimism that remains, even as everything crumbles around him, is really moving and beautiful. So that's a great choice. Yeah, it is. It is a lovely moment. Um, I think my is either. I really love the the first scene. I, we've talked about this uh, a fair bit, but I think it's such a wonderful example. Like you know, it's not the bench scene in Carousel, which I do think is like the greatest scene ever written in musical theater. It's not, you know, not quite to that level. But I think it is like a nominee for that level in terms of self-contained one act musical play. Like it does so much and so well and i i think it's really just delightful and charming gives two great star entrances um I, it's it's really super super solid um complete with one of my favorite exit lines of all time oh how simply marvelous which i think I already talked about but um like you know oh people fighting over me how simply marvelous like that's just like delightful like it's fun but i'm gonna pull an annika and split my miscellaneous thing into two things um how dare you <laughs> i one of my i love to dreamcast this show with myself mm -hmm. um and try to figure out like if you know if there were going to be a big broadway revival of of Camelot who would star in it. I actually have a notes app on my phone dedicated to coming up with people who I think would be really good in a production of Camelot, which is so nerdy and so niche, but I absolutely, that is 100% true. I have a list of young British lads who I think would make great Arthurs. Um, you cannot tease us with that and not say what your top dream cast is right now. I want Eddie Redmayne really badly. Oh, okay, okay. And that will bring us to our final segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So we kind of touched on this earlier. I think obviously the the connection to JFK and how it spoke to the political climate of the 1960s um, and the kind of breaking of the American dream that happened with the JFK assassination, um, I think is probably its most important contribution to American culture writ large. Um, I think there are obviously other things within the theater world that it, um, 
did or in terms of like breaking up Lerner and Lowe and bringing that partnership to an end, you can talk about the very granular, like it is because of Camelot that Julie Andrews got Mary Poppins and then had her entire career. I, I mean, Richard Burton, uh, is in America and like the whole Elizabeth Taylor and like, although, I mean, th there are lots of like those kinds of things that happen because of Camelot, but Annika, what do you think is its place and, and uh, corner of the sky? Well, it's kind of an interesting one because I feel like it exists as much woven into the history of its time as it does as a show itself. You know what I mean? It's like inextricably linked to Kennedy, to having a popular album, to being on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, there's so much of it that it's like, it, it was of its moment. And obviously the, the score has kind of gone down and it made, created so many classic songs. But I would say the one thing that, if I think of one show that is remembered more fondly than the show itself des deserves, I think that this is that show. I think that there's a sort of, which is so funny considering that the whole message of the show is like, remember what this was and like I think it is a show that is remembered for the glowing beauty that it could have been rather than for the actuality of it so in some ways Arthur's message at the end is very appropriate because um, there is such great fondness for the show and at the same time I don't think anybody really is quite remembering what the show actually is currently or at the time so I think it's it's that it's it's the misty memories of something that's not quite what it really is. I think that's super fair. I think it's also, and I'm talking a little bit out of my butt here, but it's also kind of the first show to um, buck the New York Times and not need a rave review in order to run and be successful and recoup. It kind of it lays a process for how to make your show successful, even if it doesn't get the reviews you want, um, which subsequently becomes much more of a thing in Broadway culture, but at that time it was very much not the normal and very much, um, you know, the, the, the reviews kind of determined whether or not you were going to run and they managed to curb that because of their publicity opportunities. But I, and it's uh, certainly not the, may not be the first show to have done that, but it certainly lays a pathway for other shows to follow uh, in attempting uh, to succeed despite critical opinion. Yeah, it's a really fascinating one. Well, that will wrap it up for our deep dive into Camelot. Um, but before we go, Annika, why don't you give us a clue about what comes next? What comes next? So Annika, what is our clue for the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight? Well, our next show is one that we've wanted to do for a long time, and it is a show that opened a brand new Broadway theater. That is a little trivia nugget that will keep our spotters guessing for the next month while they await the next episode. Yep, lots of options, but also in this show, lots of characters. That is is how we will leave you. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.
This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time.